What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is an innovative industry leader. He's building an enduring company with great people. He's responsible for leading Woodbine's investment strategy across all asset types. He's managing partner and chief investment officer at Woodbine Development Corporation. Ladies and gentlemen, Dupree Scoville. Welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. I just, it's so funny. Um, Anyway, it's really wonderful to see you. Um, For those of you who don't know, I've met you a couple of times. We've met a couple of times at industry events, kind of in passing, never really a deep conversation. Um, but what's interesting is I was in the lobby of your building uh, having a meeting with some people on your team, and I was like, oh, I want to get him on the podcast. So I took this picture of you from the side while you're in a meeting with someone. I sent it to you. I said, I hope this isn't too creepy, but I'd love to hear your story. Um, so that I share that with everyone because... When there's a leader in your industry or anything that you're doing and you want to get them, like, I think by any means necessary, tell them you want to hear their story and they'll probably respond. So thank you, Dupree. Yeah. Well, my <laughs> pleasure. I was actually scrolling through our emails trying to figure out, you know, kind of the agenda for today. And I saw that picture where, where I have that hat on, which I always wear. But, uh, <laughs> but I was like, oh, yeah, that's how we reconnected. So yeah, so glad to do it. So. And thank you. And thank you for supporting our industry in so many different ways. Um, before we get into the so many different ways and just community support and, and just everything, one of the things that I was really struck by in speaking with you um, in our prep call for this was just, I felt like as we were talking about what drives you, I felt like your values were about to like explode out of your body. Like you had to kind of <laughs> hold them back. Right. And I just feel like there are many people who we all speak to, but it just really struck you strike me as someone who is very value driven and it just means so much. So teeing it up with that. Sure. Let's get right into the first question, which is like, this is defining hospitality. How do you define hospitality? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, look how deep do we want to go here? Right. uh, But that's a that's a deep question that's and and i think look every everybody i think hopefully finds purpose um in work um hopefully they don't find their identity in work but they find their purpose in work and so for me hospitality is a is a deep spiritual value it's it's um i mean I, I'll, I'll say it in a way that hopefully is um is is kind and gentle to the audience but for me um this is a it's a it's a biblically based value that I think you look back to, um, you know, the times of Christ that like hospitality was a central tenant of how he lived and how he encouraged his followers to live. Now I'll be the first to admit that's not exactly the rap a lot of times that, that, uh, that you see today, but, but that's what, that, that's why hospitality I think means so much to us, to our family, to our company is that's an expression of a truth that we believe is like core to who we are. And so that kindness, that gentleness, that friendliness, that hospitality that, that is extended to our guests, to 
people we work with to to partners that we have partners that are financial partners or partners that are partners in in design or construction or ffne or whatever that might be that that's that's something where we think that is where hospitality can be equally extended there and so from that perspective it's one of those things where i think that is um that's that's kind of core to who we are which is why we feel like that's such an important way to express our own our own value um our own values so i hopefully that gives you a little bit of sense of it but but uh that is how i would define hospitality much more than someone staying in a guest room that's that that's not hospitality that's a that's a that's an essential um but when you are extending uh you know that warm welcome hello that a uh, uh, place to sleep um in fact I was, just a side note today i was at um went to go see austin street shelter which is just outside of uh downtown dallas which is this incredible um entity organization that is providing services to homeless folks mm-hmm. uh, folks that are the long-term uh, homeless or short term, and it's just a remarkable organization. And you kind of go in there, and it, it is. And, and I toured the whole facility. And I met some of the team, and I mean, it is it is the exact same fundamental practice. They have a kind face that welcomes that individual who's coming in off the street, who is doesn't feel like they belong anywhere, and is and is making them feel completely warm and at home, and engaging them kindly, and saying, "Hey, you you can be fed here, you can be clothed here, you can be." You can and you can have a place to sleep and where you are safe. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know that we have much difference between a homeless shelter and and the hotel business that we in, and, and sometimes in, in the, the even luxury hotel space that we're in. Maybe at the end of the day, we're we're, we're not so different uh, in terms of our purpose and mission and value there. So. Maybe a little aside, but that does give a little bit of insight into how. Actually, I, I don't think it's an aside at all. I think, you know, the staying in the room part is the what, right? It's the why that really the why is is the values and the deeper meaning that I think drives us all. And I, I love how you said, you know, we, that we shouldn't really find our purpose at work. Our work should come from we, we should be engaged in our work and love our work, but our purpose and our why has to come from something else other than work. It has to come from within. Sure. Um, sure. For the, for the listeners who don't know, congratulations on like on a big milestone. You guys just hit your fiftieth anniversary. <laughs> we did. We had, we hit fifty, which obviously I didn't have a whole lot to do with. But uh, but I mean, we lean heavily on the vision of my father. In fact, I was with a great uh, guy named Greg Massey, who's with First United Bank. I was with him um, uh, last night, and we were. We were just talking about how his bank started. Now, keep in mind, this bank today is probably—I don't know—I I would guess somewhere between somewhere between ten and twenty billion dollars today. It started with one branch in Durant, Oklahoma, that his dad started. And his dad—he gives his dad credit for why this organization has been able to scale to a you know, ten to twenty billion dollar bank. But he had—I mean—he had that local branch absolutely dialed in. He, meaning his father, and every interaction was thoughtful was thoughtful and and if you came in looking for a loan hey here's the playbook here's the list of questions you need to ask here's how you engage all these types of things that and so i was talking to greg and he was like look all i did is i took the things that my dad did and they just happened to be so good and so efficient that i was just able to go, okay we can scale those practices and, and become the bank that they've become under his leadership and so i think in many ways 
Woodbine has done the same thing. We have taken the track record that my dad has created. We have taken his values. We, we have taken how he does business, how he treats his partners. We've taken all those types of lessons and said, okay, how can we apply those today, which is a very different environment in terms of how we, um, how we develop, how we acquire, uh, how we grow. But, but generally, at the end of the day, like the, the values, those are enduring. I heard, I heard somebody say like that your only competitive advantage, no matter what business you, you're in, is your culture, which I think is fair because in one way or the other, most of the time we're offering a commodity unless we're involved in some kind of monopoly. But in, in this case, there's a lot of developers out there. There's a lot of, a lot of acquisition shops out there. So really it is about, okay, well, if you, your values have to be the key differentiating factor that someone says, that's a team I want to go work with. And so there's a long way of answering your question. Um, that 50th year, uh, my brother and I, uh, who I run the business with, we don't take a lot of credit for it. We feel like that's, that's building on a pretty good legacy. Mm-hmm. And as you're speaking about culture, it's really resonating with me because I think it's the hardest thing to create, but when it's done well, you just feel it. You really know. And if so if you think about culture that your dad created and you're perpetuating or your whole team is perpetuating because it takes a whole community to right. to make culture live and breathe, um, what do you think that like the most significant aspects of that culture have contributed to your company's longevity and success within the hospitality industry. And you're also in other channels within real estate, um, but specifically in hospitality. Well, I guess I could go two different ways. When, you, when you're asking that question, you mean more about the people or you mean more about what the company has done? I, I can kind of go probably either direction. Let's start with what the company has done. And sure. you can uh, weave in the people along the way. Yeah, sure. Look, I think Reputation is a key part of our business, um, and it's not often where you can go into a meeting and um, and you can hear the person on the other side of the table say, hey, call whoever we've done business with and ask them whether they were someone we sold to, someone we bought from, someone we borrowed money from, or whoever, whatever capacity that is, we encourage you to call them. And so from you know, and that's not that's not arrogance. It's more saying, "Hey, we expect you to do your homework. We want you to feel like you can call any one of our partners and ask them." And so, reputation is something that that you know that takes that takes a long time to build. It takes a very short time to lose. Mm. And so, we've really tried to do our best to be able to to, to lean into that um, and and on the reputation that my dad has built. And so, we we treasure that. We we value that. We're careful with that. We feel like we are stewards of that. Um, but at the same time, look, there's, there's in, in any industry, you're never going to be without conflict. You're never going to be without, you know, those types of things where there are disagreements within partners. Our hope is that even with that, when that happens, like we're going to handle our, ourselves in a way where it's like, look, we are looking for the common ground. We are not looking to have a zero sum game where it's like somebody must win and somebody must lose. That That's ideally not the way we treat any negotiation. Uh, so I think. To, to answer that question, I would say, by and large, by and large, I'd say probably the number one, um, I debate on this, actually. So we have we have five values that we kind of live and die by. Relationships, effort, accountability, conviction, and humility. Um, our team will hear me say, well, this is the most important one. No, 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 relationships is the most important one. No, humility is the most important one. So I go back and forth <laughs> depending on where we are. Uh, 
but I, I do think humility is probably the most important value at the end of the day. I think the second one is probably relationships. And so those two are hopefully what everyone would say. Yeah, you can count on that from, from Woodbine. Hmm. Um, it's interesting. I, I've been a value-driven company, I don't know, for I think about 10 years. Um, and really going through that core value exercise is a tremendous exercise and it's you don't always get it right the first time it's it's a lot of evolving yeah. um we've removed a core value uh but an interesting sure. one because you said humility is at the bottom of that list um we had one that was caring that was at the bottom of the list but i said at one point i was like you know what we need to move that to the top so mm-hmm. would you consider me moving humility to the top do you ever go through that and, re- and revise <laughs> your core well, values no because then it messes up the word the, the word is reach. Oh, and God. So then, but that's the only reason. Otherwise, I'd probably be here or something like that. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, you know, look, I, I think from um, the humility thing is something that I would say that's a direct reflection of my dad. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I don't necessarily, I, I hate to go too far down this, this, this role model hero thing. But at the end of the day, you know, a company is oftentimes defined by its founder. Right. And that founder's values, those are like, just, they're directly linked to how the company operates. And you were describing something when you were got, when you, your company was searching for values and going through that process, just like everybody does. We'd been around 50 years. We'd actually been around 40, uh, let's see, I think it was 44 years when we started this, when we actually looked at our values and said, hey, are our values actually who we are? Because we actually adapt, adopted those from the Hunt family. And the Hunt Companies, which is where our company originated from. And ironically, those values that the Hunt Companies live by were were very, we we could relate to those. There was about 10 of them, and they were all words that we would have used in in terms of how you would describe our business. But they didn't necessarily land perfectly. It didn't Mm. feel like a great fit. So um, long story short, there was was an exercise that my dad did called the Strength Finder. Uh, that you've probably heard of. And this was recycled through a random email that he had done 10 years before. And somebody sent it to me and I got it. And I was looking at it, I was going, oh my gosh, these are the five values. So then, yeah, it's not perfect translation. So we revised them to where it would fit uh, a little bit more about what we who we are. So that's where reach came from. And that's why those five, I think, all of a sudden felt like such a natural fit. And now that's really what we preach in, in every you know setting we get. I think it's also a testament to the fact that, you know, it's not surprising that you were living or you had values for 43 years and then you really did a deep dive and they and they changed to become more you. But I think that's a testament that they're not a, necessarily a fixed thing either, right? And it, and that goes along with, you know, whatever got us to where we are now might not serve us moving forward. So I think it's really awesome that you're going through that exercise because I think those values, there's so many companies where it's like it's a poster on a in a break room, but they don't talk about it. And I feel like with reach in particular or our values or other value driven companies and there's all different shapes and sizes. It's something that you really have to speak about. You you praise, you give feed, you critical feedback on um, it becomes how you attract people, how you retain people how you part ways with people um, and, and investors, I'm sure as well. Sure. No, that's right. You, you said something interesting at the front of that, that I think is spot on. When you think about 
you know, just because it's the way things have been done in the past doesn't mean that's the way they need to be done in the future. It's something my, my dad has told me a lot. In fact, when we joined, when my brother and I joined the business, that was a, that was a big part of what he was, was, uh, charging us with was look. And again, that, that's just a testimony to his humility, but he was looking at a lot of the changes that we were making. He was looking at a lot of the, 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 uh, you know, major changes, how we do meetings, um, you know, some of our internal policies, how we hire, how big the team was, how small the team was, these types of things that were really a set entity for, you know, before my brother and I got involved 30 something years. And so then to have two young knuckleheads come in and go, hey, we got to do this. We got to change that. We got to shorten this, make this longer, get rid of that. You know, if I'm the founder, I'm going, hey, hey, time out, time out. I've been, I've been, I've been doing just fine without you for a long time, you know, 30 plus years now. I don't need you to come in and tell me how to do this thing. And so, but that wasn't his attitude. His attitude was, look, just because that's the way we've always done it doesn't need, mean that's the way we need to do it in the future. And so that's where that humility thing comes in. And I think then there's also, of course, that plays out a hundred different ways. You're negotiating a loan doc with the lender. And, and you you know, oftentimes, or, or an equity partner or a seller or whatever the case is. And it's like the attitude is typically, hey, I'm going to win and you're going to lose, period. And I think that's not exactly the most humble approach. It's not wrong. It's just not not necessarily a humble approach. And so we kind of look at it and go, well, look, there's got to be a middle ground. There's got to be common ground in there somewhere. Let's try and figure that out, and then we can figure out what, which points are more important on either side. So some of them, it's it's interesting because that taps back to that idea of the zero-sum game, which you mentioned earlier. And some of the most successful people I know, if I could summarize kind of what makes them probably what was the fuel to make them very successful is they're so good at any in any situation at finding that place where everyone wins right it's it's, the relationships the collision it becomes accretive and it's a one plus one equals a three or a five or a hundred but it's it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game and I, i don't know like and and it's just like uh it's really inspiring when I'm around my, my friends who are like that. And it just always makes me think differently about how I operate. Um, what are some examples of finding that everybody wins situation in a large transaction? Do you have any that you could share? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, actually. Well, I'll, I'll give you a person first versus an example. But um, and So I used to work at Trammell Crow. A guy named Bob Salentic, who is the who is the current CEO and Trammell. Well, he's the CBO. Of, he, he is the CEO of CBRE. So CB Richard Ellis, CBRE bought Trammell Crow. He was the CEO of Trammell Crow at the time, and then much of that leadership team became uh, the leadership team that ran CBRE. And and so I, this was not a conversation I directly had with Bob, although I'd had many with him, and it matches his character. But a guy that he was working for, we were kind of just reminiscing about how what how beneficial it was to be under his tutelage how how great it was for us just to have the accessibility to a guy like that and because he's just he's just talk about humility there, there's very few like him but he was describing to my former colleague he was kind of saying look i don't know if i'm just bad at negotiation now i just maybe i'm just not good at it anymore but i just don't have time to argue i don't want to argue i can't i don't want to fight anymore i just I'd much rather get to the quickest solution possible 
where both sides feel like there's there's hopefully both have won <laughs> and i was like that that makes a lot of sense i mean so, so it almost like maybe accelerated that in my own career and it gave me an excuse to say i need to get there quicker I don't need to. I don't need. That shouldn't take me twenty years to learn that. Let me just learn what he he's already learned and get there now. And so I think that actually influenced me um, a, a little bit more than probably that colleague or Bob Selenik even knows. But but his willingness to say, look, just a lot easier to go find the common ground first, then let's negotiate versus like, okay, let's establish our position and just fight it out until until you you know you can't even see straight. Yeah, and it's interesting because. Uh... There's so many negotiations that you hear about where it's like, okay, in a negotiation or a mediation, everyone needs to kind of lower their expectations, but all parties lower, and then they meet somewhere in the middle. But I'm sure that with Bob and finding the, uh, I don't know him, but finding that common ground and going from there, it, it is a place where in a negotiation, everyone can win. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, there's not, it is a scenario where we're, yeah, I guess it could be cliche. It, it is. There are sometimes where that's just impossible. Where mm. where there's going to be scenarios where it's like, hey, we cannot compromise on this because of whatever reason, and that other party may have something similar. And if those those two don't align, sometimes that'll lead to a deal going away. But but I think to the extent possible, at least um, sometimes sometimes it's not necessarily that both teams win. Sometimes that both teams feel like they have lost a little. Yeah. Uh, so so. It's, not always perfect but but it, it at least is can be a guiding principle yeah it's not always perfect but there are times when it does work out and i think if that's the north star that you're trying to get to um it's 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 a great place to be um so with respect to the person who helped you kind of or mentored you whether he realized it or not um is there a transaction or a, a deal that you guys have done at Woodbine or in your career that kind of exemplifies that? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I, I literally could point to every single one of our transactions where that has, that has you know, been true. Whether, by the way, whether that's um, between my brother and I when we're debating about what the Woodbine logo should be <laughs> on, on our vest <laughs> – Right. I mean, that's like, hey, w- what's important to you? Why is that important to you? OK, you know, so that transaction all the way up to buying the Driscoll in Austin, um, you know, last year where uh, there we were. Hyatt was the seller. Hyatt is a group that we have a, a long history with a 50 year relationship with, basically. Um, and because they were one of the first hotels uh, groups that we developed with. They were the owner of that asset. They knew that we wanted to own it. Um, so there's a there's a position of leverage there for sure. And there was there was a lot of points about that where um, most buyers would have said, "Hey, we need to be able to get. We want to unencumber the asset. We don't necessarily want to have Hyatt as the manager." Well, we're in a unique position where Hyatt has managed for us on many assets, and so we could look at that and say, "Well, that's actually probably a point of advantage for us to be able to say we're willing to have them in the asset." as manager longer because we can we, we trust them as an operator so that that for us was saying okay there's there's a give and take on either side of it but those are opportunities where those negotiations really never got contentious they were sometimes long hmm. but they didn't get contentious because they had the same mentality it was hey how do we figure out how to make this work of course then you had while this is going on 
you have Ukraine war, you have all these other things that start and, and, and are happening around the world. And there was not a scenario where it was like, okay, now we, Woodbine, can take advantage of that or vice versa. Um, it was really a scenario where it was like, okay, we're going to need more time to let the debt market start to settle out. Mm. Let's kind of figure out how to do that together. And that's where, again, it's never never perfect. We had to give up on some things, and Woodbine had, or uh, Hyatt had to give up on some things. But but negotiating with them, particularly a guy named James Frankie uh, over there, that that was a wonderful um, although you know tough at times but it was a, that, that's where you leave that and at the end of the day we're having a closing event and we're inviting all of them to it because it's like hey we appreciate your participation in that that's the way a partnership should look like where both sides can win they got a great price we think we got a great price we got a great hotel they sold a great hotel they're still managing it right they know we're going to invest a ton and then all those kind of things I think are that's just a win mm-hmm. wow thank you for sharing that uh, sure. That's a really exciting project, and I can't wait for that one to really yeah. get repositioned. So that's that's really cool. Um, I know you mentioned uh, humility as the H in reach. If you think about your role, yours, your brothers, your fathers, and everyone actually in Woodbine, how does that, when you think to the future, how does humility play such a major role in like how you see the future playing out. All right, that that's an interesting question. Um, so on, on the fly, with not a whole lot of time to think about it, um, I think there is a when, when you are pursuing. Well, let's just take the market conditions now. Right, where you're in the middle of a banking crisis, um, you are uh, interest rates are three x what they used to be. Um, a very difficult transaction environment, uh, and and you you're like you know everybody's saying hey how are things going what what what's that look you know is this year busy for you guys well yes busy because we have a lot of existing projects that we owned prior to this point that we're working on but at the same time it's like hey I think we're, we're we kind of have to have the humility to know that this year from an acquisition or development standpoint is probably going to be slow and mm-hmm. so. Two ways to, to do that. Either you go, no, no, that's not the way we are. We're going to charge forward. We're going to go. We're going to buy something else. We're going to, you know, and that, that leads to probably not great decision making. Or you go, hey, like we we got we kind of have to we're going to have to take our lumps this year and and kind of work our way through it until we feel like it's a better time to be able to acquire. So that that's like the immediate near time or near term. But then you think about, you know, ten years down the road. I think the question is, well, what? What are we? What are we building for? Mm-hmm. What are we doing? How are we growing? Um, and for us, I, th- I think there is humility in this, and, and that it may just be a matter of perspective. But our goal is not to be the Trammell Crow of the hospitality business. We, we don't want to have fifty offices around the country. That's that's not who we are. Um, but we do want to grow this company with great people, as you alluded to earlier. That's part of our vision. We want to grow this business in a methodical way. We want to be so our our real uh, uh, kind of mission for us is saying an enduring company. We want to look back and say, okay, fifty years from now, when we're celebrating a hundred, what do we do to patiently grow the business? And I think that's that's less about being the biggest, and that's more about being the, the enduring company, the mm. company that perseveres. So. You know, I, I don't know if humility is, is in that. It feels like it is to me, but th- I think that would probably affect 
that, that at least informs how we anticipate our growth. No, I, I agree. I mean, that's that's resonating with me. And it's so often you hear scale, 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 grow, grow, grow. Um, but to really just in, endure. And I've shared this a couple times in conversations. I read a book called Small Giants by a guy, Bold Burlingame, I think his name is. I'll send it to you after. But it, I wish I read that at the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey because it was really just about it identified a bunch of different companies that made a conscious effort to to stay small and connected yeah. to their community and be the best that they could be and endure. Right? I don't. I'm I'm curious if I like did a search on a Kindle like how many times they use the word endure, but I bet they. I don't remember that word being used very much. So I really appreciate your angle on on an enduring company. So I think that that's a really good thread to pull on. Um, Dupree, you recently posted in LinkedIn uh, as a way of kind of giving back for your 50th anniversary celebrations, like a lot of the community work that you're doing. Um, it within Dal- I assume it's within Dallas. It probably could be in more places. Um, but like, can you share more about the local organizations you're supporting and like how you're collaborating with them? Sure. I mean, like I, we, yeah, there's probably two that I would talk about. Um, I mentioned Austin Street earlier, which is one that we have gotten behind. Paul Quinn College is another one that we've gotten behind just in a remarkable HBCU located here in Dallas, uh, led by a guy named Dr. Michael Sorrell. Um, that, that is, uh, I mean, what he's doing out there is, I mean, they kind of call, they call it nation building. That's what it is. I mean, I walked into this gym and, uh, to, to, we were meeting with Dr. Sorrell about this gift with, with the intent that hopefully our message would encourage others almost to call to action in a way to be able to give to the university. And so, um, but there was a, a girls basketball practice going on at the time. Dr. Sorrell kind of, you know, looks at these gals, um, uh, not, not like I'm almost expectingly like a coach would. And I mean, they drop the basketballs, they come right over and they shake our hand. They say, you know, they say their name, they say where they're from, they say what their major is, they say what they intend to do when they get out of college. And I'm like, wow, like, look, that's not going on at, well, I'm not going to name a university, but that's not going on at most universities. Yeah. And I was just so impressed with that type of, character development at the same time where you're you're obviously promoting you know education and so that that's a neat thing but my brother's been really involved with the isd dallas independent school district and and he's done he's probably done more for hillcrest than just about the hillcrest high school than just about anyone including like our the architecture of a bond campaign that would help rebuild a gym and and uh, mm. donations to build a, a, a new locker room. i mean just all these types of things that are that are really improving that school as an institution for that neighborhood and of course you know it, it's, it shouldn't just start and stop with us you know his wife is the president of pta you know my mom you know my mom's involved with dozens of different organizations so that's something real well where when you think about uh, kind of the dna of who we are that that was something that was encouraged first by my grandparents who were involved in all kinds of things in dallas and so then that, of course, passed down to my dad, who's involved in a hundred different things. And now we feel like, look, the obligation is not, it's, it's not, you know, if we are going to be involved, it's what we're going to be involved with. So, yeah, among those things are some of the ones that that, uh, that I mentioned. Probably the one that means the most to, 
to me and that, that I think has been really impactful. Well, there's probably two. One is called Scoble Scholars, which is a high school scholarship foundation that, that, uh, that our family started that really tries to give scholarships to, um, and it's usually small balance scholarships, five to 10K, to kids that are going, uh, that, are, that have some connection to leadership or sports that are coming from an economically disadvantaged background. And so, and you know, that's not like, that's not the captain of the football team. It's not necessarily the valedictorian. Sometimes it's the, it's the trainer or the water boy or the guy that's the facilities, you're the, the equipment manager for the band. Right. Mm-hmm. That that has, that that is just but it tells a great story, comes from a tough background and wants to go, you know, tries to, is trying to make themselves, you know, create opportunity for themselves. That's one. The second one is called Scoville Business Leaders Program, um, which is at Texas Tech. And that takes a percentage that students apply to be a part of that program. They're at Texas Tech. They're in the business school program. And then they just have a unique track within that. Now they're meeting with business leaders. There's an internship program through our company that we facilitate with them. They are going, they're doing an international um, uh, kind of transfer program. There's just, there's a whole lot of things that they, that they get to experience as a part of that, that then we get to invest in those kids in, in, in one way or another. So those are two that I think are doing, that are having just a, an interesting ripple effect. But then, you know, look, I could go on and on about the things here in Dallas, but there are also parts in, uh, that, that, you know, Proposition A, which won't mean much to your listeners, was a local uh, bond campaign, effectively, if you will, a referendum that was to allow for the development of a convention center here in Dallas. And that's something that I got really passionate about because that affects our industry. That affects the trajectory of downtown. I also think it rights a lot of wrongs from an infrastructure standpoint that were created in Dallas that separated the South from the North. So, those are types of things where it's like we try to pick our spots fairly carefully, but when it is something we want to be passionate about, it's like, hey, we're going all chips in. Wow, you got a busy plate there. Uh, <laughs> so wait, so now shifting over to the family business. So, sure. you know, you talk, you hear these stories of Albert Einstein saying, you know, the most incredible thing he's ever heard of is compounding interest, right? He like can't get his head around it, and that's Einstein for, from a, a monetary perspective. But I would say to Mr. Einstein that I think if family businesses, so many are done incorrectly, but from a family multi-generational business, if done well, what's more important than the compounding interest, I think, are the compounding relationships. Because I think like going back to your first core value relationships, relationships are really what make everything ha- happen, regardless of money, return, properties, transaction, it really all comes down to that inter-party relationship. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and because I guess it's the R in reach, but like from a re- relationship perspective, how do you guys as a family business manage that relationship so that every, like, obviously I'm sure it's not all rainbows and unicorns all the time, but like, how do you resolve um, conflict within your family relationship so that you're still doing good for the whole for the whole company and the whole organization and the whole community? Well, I'll I'll, I'll start with a couple of stories. So I'll back up just a little bit and say, um, first of all, we had an unbelievable example with the Hunt family. So uh, Ray Hunt uh, took over the oil and gas business for his father, who died unexpectedly. Now, his father 
discovered a well, an oil and gas well, that made him the richest man in the world at one time. And so there was fantastic wealth that was associated with that. And then this company, of course, though, it's not just one well. I mean, it, 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 it's, it was a massive enterprise. Mr. Hunt was now charged with taking that business over. Um, and a lot of unique family dynamics there. I think, uh, if I remember right, seven or eight different siblings. So, so a lot of that was actually stuff that we learned by watching, by watching how their family did it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and naturally, a bigger family like that, there are a lot of different pockets. Um, you know, you got Lamar Hunt on his side, which was you know, Kansas City Chiefs and the sports business and those things which that's a remarkable family. So there, there's a lot of different parts and pieces to it. But if you look at Mr. Hunt's direct family, I think his his three sisters uh, that were involved in the business are involved in a way that, that I, I believe, you know, were participating in, in kind of how that was economically working anyway. Like that was just a model that we got to see to go, man, like, that is intentional. It is humble. It is thoughtful. It is, I mean, that, that's probably how I would describe Mr. Hunt in any scenario is thoughtful and intentional. Um, and so I think that's probably where that, that was the first lesson that we had. And of course they were, you know, our, our business was a first generation business while they had already gone through a second gen transition. And then it was going to a third generation while my brother and I were involved. So, so that was an interesting learning experience to kind of watch that along the way. So I think, again, I mean, relationships are critical to it. Um, but it, it was really about my dad saying, hey, I, I think we need to transition the business sooner than I might have otherwise expected um, because I think you guys are ready and I think we move, need, to, need to move the business. I think, I think, it, has to, I think it has to evolve. Mm. And so that was partly his vision and recognizing that. And so I do think there's one part of it that probably helps um, is it, it, my brother and I, I we, we don't, necessarily think about who is contributing what um, because it, it changes. He, he, he has a massive influence on, on a certain project that is enormously important to our balance sheet. And then an, another time I might have a little impact or, or here on, the, on another part of it. And so there's, it's not always like, okay, you're doing it, I'm doing it, the CFO's doing it uh, or whatever. It, it really is a balance. And I think what helps is it's, it's, it's not a scorekeeping type of game where it's saying, okay, well, hey, I did this, so I ought to get more of that. We've kind of looked past that. Again, it, our, our mission our, is, is not to create an enduring company that makes us very both, both very wealthy. Our, our mission is to create an enduring company with great people. And mm-hmm. so that ought to inform how we act around each other, how we, how we resolve conflict. And so there's usually not, a, not much, there's never conflict about money stuff between us. That's not because we've always just resolved to say, hey, it, we're just going to be above board fare and never have to think about it again. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no renegotiating. There's no stop. None of that stuff. Um, uh, so, so I think that's the that's probably one of the probably one of the biggest things that that I think has helped avoid a lot of that where conflict normally arises. But look, there's conflict a lot about should we go this way? Should we go that way? You know, should we do this deal? Should we not do that deal? Hey, we're way too invested here. We, we need to stop there. Hey, the capital raise has taken a lot longer than it should have. Why? Yeah, you know, there's always conflict around that, which is just, but, but, it, but that's just part of, you know, mm. the iron sharpening iron, I think. 
Yeah. And again, when conflict happens, I love how you say it's really you fall back to your values because then that helps make the decision for yeah. you almost in a sense. Yeah. You um, already made that decision. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So now going into just bringing it back into hospitality in particular, you know, we've been through a crazy couple of years, but as you look forward, obviously you mentioned the Driscoll, but just in general, looking forward, what's exciting you and Woodbine the most about the future? You know, th- there's some really interesting things, I think, on the horizon in hospitality. I, I, I'm i one who doesn't necessarily, and I, this podcast could prove me very wrong, you know, when somebody listens to it in five years, but um, if they do, uh, but but they listen to you. I don't know. <laughs> it's more of an indictment on me. I'll set a calendar um, reminder for five sorry, years yeah, in the future. Right. We'll, we'll do a relaunch. That's right. But I think, I think so again, somebody may look back and, and prove me wrong there, but I just don't see this mountain of distress happening. So uh, I think some folks would answer this question, go, hey, we're entering into a unique period where there's going to be a lot of distress and a lot of foreclosures and a lot of opportunities to acquire assets. Um, I would love for that to be true well, in some ways, but, but I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case. Um, so I think for this is where a methodical approach, an intentional approach to growth becomes more and more important. So when I think about what's happening over the course of the next several years, there are, there are two major brand launches that both Hyatt and Hilton are working on that are in that kind of long stay category. So extended economy, extended stay. I, there, there's many terms for it, but um, but that's that's the type of hotel that is you know between two weeks and kind of thirty days, hmm. that type of stay. Those are going to be really interesting to see how those launch. I mean, that's like Extend to Stay America and some of the other, Amer- I think Amera Suites is another one. That's going to be interesting to see how that changes our industry. I would predict that those two are going to be the fastest launch that our industry has ever seen. Just just like one man's opinion. I think it's going to be, I think it'll be Courtyard. I think it'll be Residence Inn. I think, it, I think it'll be literally the fastest growth that, that any brand has, um, that, that our industry has seen. So I could be wrong about that, but that's something. But I think for us, it's really about um, this is a I think there's a unique point in time where my brother and I have been in the business, uh, him 24 years, me about 21 years. Hmm. And and I think this is where your relationships really do start to matter a lot more in kind of in this window. And so I, I think we will have the ability to live out what we have said many years that, that, Hey, we're going to invest in those over time and those will pay dividends at the right time. And so that's where I think some of those opportunities have already started to materialize in that, in that fashion. But so I think it's, and that's going to look like, it's going to look like off market stuff. It's going to look like nuanced stuff. It's going to look like buying certain partners out. It's going to be some more creative type things and structures like that. But, but uh, for us, I think we will maintain growth and hospitality. That's kind of what we know. But it's also because we've gone through a pandemic, you know, and, and, and existential, existential crisis times, you know, 10, as we've seen over the last several years, it has forced us to say, look, we, we got to, we can't be a one trick pony. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to get into industrial. We've got to get into multifamily. We've got to get into office. And so we've, we've started to go into those spaces and we've partnered with people that we think can help us grow there. And so that's where we've tried to find. A, a, a formula for success, which I think will allow us to diversify this company over over many years. So that's probably where we start to look at things that get us excited or going, well, 
as much as we love the heart and soul of our company and, and we'll focus on hospitality for probably forever, we do want to grow that and then allow those core tenants that we've learned in hospitality to inform how we do deals in the other spaces. Yeah. I love the model of, you know, within real estate, industrials, hospitality, office, multifamily, because even though you're riding that kind of credit cycle wave that we're all kind of subject to, um, it does create some non-correlation as well, which is which is really, really good. Um, That's right. You went to Texas Tech, right? I did. Reckham. 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 Yeah. There you go. Not Gigham, but Reckham. Um, That's right. So, if you, the Dupree I'm talking to right now, were to magically appear in front of your 18 year old self, what <laughs> advice? What What advice would you have for yourself? Oh my gosh, that has that is, yeah, I I know exactly what that'd be. Um, but that's probably a little deeper than you want to go. I, I think um, what, what's, a, what's, a, what's a concise way to describe that? Um, I think there, there's some interesting ways. Uh, all right, so I'm, I'm going to go a little deeper here. So Good, please. You, if you, if you got to edit it, do what you got to. <laughs> um, so, I, so we'll go all the way back. In high school, I, was, I got... Um, I broke my collarbone. I was, this was my senior year and I was playing football and I thought, you know, that was once that, once I broke my collarbone, I was done for the season. My entire identity was wrapped up in who I I was as as a, as an athlete and who I thought I was going to be. So I don't know if I would have gotten any scholarships, but all of them were gone now for sure. Um, And so Texas tech, I was a known quantity. And so I went there um, because my two older brothers were there and my dad had gone there. All of them had played football. And so if nothing else, I thought, well, they, they might think I come from good stock. And so maybe they'll give me a shot. And they did. I don't know if I should have been on the team or not, but they let me get on the team. And, um, and I learned a lot because I was a walk on. And when you're a walk on, you, you're a second class citizen. You have, mm. you have almost no rights, you, right? You don't eat with a team. You don't, I mean, it, it, it is an, it's an interesting, it's just, just an interesting experience. Like you, you almost always have two strikes. And so you learn to kind of operate with a chip on your shoulder. That it's like, I'm going to prove myself no matter what. And so that became such a drive of mine. But I also had a very good perspective. I was like, hey, I'm not that good. I'm, I'm never going to be an All-American. Uh, but I don't want to be a Rudy story either. And so I kind of worked myself on the field. But I knew that being on the field was not necessarily where I was going to make my mark in the world. And so I started getting really involved with things outside of that, um, with, with different organizations and things that were impactful to the campus and um, helped start what was, a, what was the largest, I think the second largest student booster club in the country at the time and was involved with a lot of leadership positions and doing different things like that. And so I, that, that was really interesting, I think, and fulfilling to me. And I was like, okay, this is probably where I'm going to make my mark. Mm. Uh, at the same time, I knew that I wanted to go to grad school. And I knew that if I, if I was going to go to grad school, a degree from tech would be challenging if you just had one. And so because I was there in the summers for football, I was like, hey, I'm just going to take, take every class I can take. and I'm never going to take an elective. I'll always make sure that whatever class I take qualifies for another major. So I graduate with as many degrees as I can possibly get. 
because I figured, well, if I have two or three or four from tech, it would then match one kid from Yale. Then that might give me an edge when I want to get into, you know, a, a, a grad school that was, you know, top tier. So I think there's probably two things I would say. <clears throat> I would probably tell myself, number one, you're not defined by any of those things. Mm. You're not defined by on the field. You're not defined by off the field. You're not defined by degrees. You're not defined by where you want to go to grad school. None of those things define who you are. Um, what what defined me was was a personal relationship with the Lord, and that's and I I didn't necessarily understand that at the time. It took a long time for me to kind of get there, but every other poor decision I made, every other poor decision I made, whether it was relationships or whether it was you know you literally you name it, stemmed from thinking about that my identity was was from something else was was something that I had to do to achieve. And that, at the end of the day, that that leads to a pride, that leads to a consumption material, that, or, or, or you know, desire. That leads to a, a, a matter of thinking that that you know, as I've seen at least in my own life, it doesn't end well. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe much more than you bargained for. <laughs> but I love it. That that's how I would kind of look at it and go, man, I had I had a lot to learn with that scenario. Yeah, and. It's amazing how the trappings of life or the rat race or I loved how you said like being defined by all these external um, factors, degrees, car, whatever. It could be anything. But really, it has to come from within a higher power. Like it's again, it's values wherever you find those values and your spirituality. If you're really in that within that envelope you just kind of operate differently right you make different decisions and it's a it's a it's a good place to be and gosh i wish we could all know that at 18 <laughs> yeah one of those things too where i i i, in, I hear people say there's i have no regrets and and i probably understand what they mean there's probably some qualifications there but man i have a lot of regrets a lot of regrets from like man i there was a lot of wasted time, wasted energy, wasted motion, things I wish I'd have done differently. So, but uh, but look, that's what that's where grace is. So I'm, I'm grateful too that you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that there is forgiveness and we can we can move now and learn from those things. Like, okay, well, what what can we do different now? And hopefully encourage a lot of 18 year olds. <laughs> they go, hey, don't do what I did. There's another way to do it. And and just curiosity, how many degrees did you get? I got I got four degrees, which, which uh, yeah, which I don't know. I like I said that doesn't mean a whole lot, but that was that was something that I think did give me a bit of an edge when I when I was applying to the grad schools I was applying to. And what position did you play in high school and then in college after you walked on? So, so I was a quarterback in high school. I was a receiver in college, but really the way I, that I got on the field, I mean, I was a backup to Wes Welker, who's one of my best friends. Um, oh, wow. but so I, I wasn't gonna get on the field much but so the way that I got on the field was I was a special teams guy now we'll tell you this Mike Leach was my was my coach <gasps> and he's um was a, was obviously a, a you know legend in his, yeah. in his own right um but I I honestly think that the reason Mike Leach put me on the field is because then he could have an academic all-american so I think he's like hey let's just hide Scoville somewhere where he can't hurt us too much yeah <laughs> so I was so I, had, I would start on special teams and do all this other stuff 
but but at least then we have that we can check that academic all-american box and then we're recruiting other moms can say well he can say to them hey look look at all the, the look at all these kids we've got on our team that are that are you know academic all-americans so i i think that may have been that may have been part of it i'm, I'm convinced so mike leach is one of the greatest college coaches or coaches in the most in the general sense ever right and so much about what we do in relationships and business is about coaching and bringing out the best of others. Yeah. And sadly, we lost, I think it was a total freak surprise that he passed yeah. away last year, right? Um, if you were to think about the feeling, like, what made Mike Leach unique and, and like, what, what was your biggest takeaway or learning from him that you've kind of paid forward? Because that's incredible that he, that he was your coach. Oh, he, he had a couple of things he would say to us all the time there were kind of four main things but 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 two of them he said a lot number one like he had a motto was like get better every day and yeah the, the, and I'll, I'll expound on that the other one was don't confuse activity with improvement and the idea was both kind of harp on the same thing but the idea is like look take advantage of the moment you have to be able to get better and i think there's an integrity in practice mm. that uh that we oftentimes lose. And I was talking to my son. He's got a he's got a play today that I'm going to, or his first musical, which is he's an Annie Jr. and he's Warbucks. And oh. we were kind of talking about this idea that like how many performances are there? There's three, and you practice I don't know how I mean you know 300 hours to, for that one moment. And I think there like what in our house we kind of define integrity we say look it's 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 doing the right thing even when no one's looking that that is what practice is it's mm. saying hey the cameras aren't on the crowds aren't there but are you doing your absolute best and i think that's one of those things where whether you're a walk-on like i was or you're a five-star athlete that was the the you know like welker who well by the way his story is interesting because he was a walk-on <laughs> he just happened to have a 10-year career in the nfl but but Either way, on the, either ends of that spectrum, the, the 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 message was the same. It's like, hey, don't come out here and waste time. Come out here and do your absolute best, and 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 give it your absolute all. And I mean, look, I think any athlete resonates with that. Even if you're going into the workplace, you're like, hey, I don't want to just come spin on wheels when I'm coming to the office. I want to feel like I am hustling, that I'm winning, that I am that I'm working hard, that I'm contributing to a team. So th- those are the things that I think where where Leach's words are kind of immortal in that way, where it's like, hey, it, yeah, sure, it's it's a Thursday and it's whatever time it is, three fifteen. It's like, all right, well, uh, we're getting better every day. Like, let's keep going. I I think it also goes into like you know just in practice of anything. It's not like if you're ta- if you want to be become a better free throw shooter, it's not just going and taking two hundred shots a day. It's really that's just like junk activity. It's really like yeah. it, making little changes and adjustments and really thinking about it, it at the expense of, you know, missing a lot just so that you're always tweaking and, and, and continual improvement. I mean, Dupree, I've, I've enjoyed our conversation so much and it's really inspired me in a lot of different ways. Um, thank you. If I really appreciate it. If people wanted to learn more about you um, or Woodbine, like what's the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn for sure. I'm on it. I'm on it quite a bit. We tell our story there. Um, so yeah, hit me up anytime. I, I, I enjoy that uh, medium awesome. for sure. 
Awesome. And, you know, thank you so much for your time. And also, thank you to the listeners. I know I just started checking the charts for the first time ever. And from a de- on the design charts for Apple, we're up at like 30-something in the United States, which is freaking crazy. And obviously, like, we have great guests like Dupree, but it really comes down to the people who are engaged and listening. And I'm humbled. There's that humility one, right? Hey, well, congratulations. That's a big deal. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad to be on it. I don't know, I don't know why I'm pretty- there, but I'm glad to be there. It's pretty fucking awesome. And also, um, I just found out I've had one person uh, who works at Marriott Rado on and he's from Bulgaria. And I just looked last night and we were number one in Bulgaria. So thank you to Rado's family. If you're listening, I appreciate you. (laughs) Does Texas count as a country? Well, can you can you actually track the results there? Maybe I think there's a way to track. And yes, Texas does is have its own mindset country. of its yes. own country. It, 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 had it, a, it had an embassy in London. So, uh, But seriously, to all the listeners and people tuning in, um, thank you. I mean, you're, you're a testament that we're doing something right and, and it's resonating with people. So we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time.